Man, you guys can have a seat. All right. By the way, that, that song, I love that song. How many of y'all love that song? That, that, that's just awesome. Good grace. Amen. Well, I'm so glad you guys joined us today. Thank you for joining us online. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to make one, an announcement of one thing. If you are a female, there's a women's retreat on October 14th through 16th. Please sign up for that. There's still some spots available. It's going to be fantastic. Get away from the house. Get away from the kids. Get away from, you know, everything and just enjoy. Uh, uh, and it's going to be fantastic. My wife loves them and uh, they've always done very well. So see April Maggard. Where's April Mega right there. Uh, and uh, please get signed up. There are a couple spots left. A um, couple, three, four, however many spots left. Please go. We definitely want you to go. Um, you ladies need each other. You really do. And so uh, please do that. All right. So we are in part three of our series, Make Your Mistakes, Don't Make Mine. And today, we're talking about something that's, that's, that's difficult. It's hard, okay? It's, today's going to be a hard message. Hard message for me to write, even hard for me to preach. Maybe hard for you to hear. I hope it isn't. But it just basically shows us uh, the mistakes people have made so we don't make them. Uh, the main thing <clears throat> today is faithfulness gives birth to prosperity, but the daughter soon <clears throat> devours the mother. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I was uh, uh, mowing the grass one time. My backyard is very hilly. It's a tough, uh, tough yard to mow. And my little daughter, Casey, when she was about five years old, I was mowing the grass. They used to bring me water. They, they'd sit there and wait for me to come around and bring me water. So cool. Well, one time, Casey was waiting right there, and she said uh, over the mower, she goes, I want to help. And I'm like, okay, come on. So I, I was at the you know, top bar, and there's that little bar there, and she was walking in front of me and, and, and everything, and we were mowing the grass together. And one, one step, I, I hit her foot, and she turns around, and she said, Daddy, you're in my way. And I thought to myself, she actually thinks she's the one pushing this mower. She actually thinks that she's the one I was pushing it all. She wasn't really doing anything. I was pushing the mower. She actually started thinking she was the one doing this and that I was holding her back. I was in the way. And I just thought to myself, my goodness, isn't that us with God? Here's God pushing the mower, doing all the work, and he invites us into the story into life and things are going great and we start thinking we're the ones making it all happen. And then we turn around and tell God, you're in my way, get out. When he's the one doing all the work. And the story of Israel is also the story of America. It is literally that. It is us about God blessing us, inviting us into his blessing, us thinking that we're the ones making it all happen, and then telling God he's in our way, get out. It's called the prosperity trap. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it, it happens throughout Israel's history. It's happening in America. It happens in our lives right now. Uh, somebody told me that nothing improves your prayer life like big trouble. Okay? People, people are always looking to God when things are going badly. After 9-11, everybody got real religious. 
Uh, the, the, everyone remember Congress standing on the front steps of the Capitol, spontaneously breaking out into God Bless America. Churches were packed. You know, had churches been packed before then? Had Congress been singing God Bless America before 9-11? Might not have happened. But so for some reason, we always reach up to God more in adversity than we do in prosperity. And people typically handle adversity much better than they handle prosperity. As a matter of fact, throughout history, it's shown that we can't handle prosperity. It's called the prosperity trap. And this is what the prosperity trap cycle looks like. Stage one, suffering and trials, hard times. Follow along with me here. Then after, after that, things are hard, things are tough. Stage two, the people finally have had it with the suffering and the hard times. They repent and they turn to God. God, save us, like after 9-11. Then stage three, God delivers from suffering and trial. He removes the scourge, he removes the hard times as people change their behavior and society gets great. Then stage four, there's peace and prosperity. Things are great. God removes all of the challenges, removes the foreign invaders, removes uh, the, 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 this, the destruction of the family, removes all that as people repent and turn to God, and there's peace and prosperity. Then stage five, it's complacency and forgetting. We think we're the ones pushing the mower. And then stage six, rejection of God and rebellion because we don't want him in our lives because we're the ones running the show. And then when we reject God, then we go back to stage seven, suffering and trials. It's just a cycle. Everybody thinks things are so bad right now in America. No, no, it's just cyclical. Everything that's been going on right now has been done before. We're just in the stage, somewhere between stage six and stage seven. That's where we are right now. And so Israel's history that we can learn from, from history is same as us. It's like a bird hitting the same window repeatedly. We actually have a video of, like a 30 second video of Israel's history. Check this out. That's literally Israel's history. Try it, get hurt, don't do it again. Try it, get hurt, don't do it. That is literally it. Uh, go through me through uh, the book of Judges with me. I, this will seem exhaustive, but it's intended to be that way because I want you to see the cycle. All right, Judges 3, 7. The Israelites did evil in the, in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Sherahs. Those are the gods of the people living in the country with them. Two verses later. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, uh, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. So they cried out to God. They, they, they rejected God. Then, then hard times happened. They cried out to God. God removed them. Uh, God, God removed it. And save them. Then again, just a few verses later, Judges 3.12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because they did this evil, the Lord gave, gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. A few verses later, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. He gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, uh, king of Moab. And God delivers them again. 
Then Judges 4, 1, rinse, repeat. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that Ehud was dead. A couple verses later, Judges 4, 23 through 24. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. So they did evil, and then God delivered them. Are you guys seeing a cycle here? Okay, Judges 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. If you notice, it's getting longer, worse, and worse, and worse. Okay, verse uh, 7 through 8. But when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And he lectures him saying that you've got to stop this poverty, this prosperity cycle. You've got to stop doing this. Every time you reject me and then things get hard and, and tough for you, I save you. And then you forget. So stop doing that is what God is saying here. But here in Judges chapter 10, verse 6, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, gods of Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. In other words, they just started looking a lot like the people around them and the culture they're living in. It's a good thing the church isn't doing that today. Verses 10 through 16, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Remember, this is the fourth or fifth time that this has happened. We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, and the Melchites, and the Ammonites, and the websites, and everybody, uh, oppressed you, and you cried out for help, did I not save you from their hands? Verse 13, but you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Wow. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. Can you hear the heart of God here? Can you hear them? Can you hear him? How much he loves these people have rejected him? And, he, and this, this is, I believe, this is said out of heartbreak. Heart, heartbreak. I really do. Because his love has not been returned from his people. And he says, you've chosen them. Let them save you. He's almost like, I'm almost done. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. And they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. So he saves them. And just a few chapters later, Judges 13.1, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Remember, it was seven years prior. It was short Short, and the, and the period of judgment got longer and longer and longer. So what's going on here? It's a prosperity trap that we saw. They start thinking they're the ones pushing the mower. They think they're the ones that are causing their land to be blessed. They think that their actions and their work ethic and everything is what is bringing the prosperity, and they shove God to the corner, and then all of a sudden they realize it was God all along. Sugar Ray Leonard had a, a quote that Stuck with me all these years. He, he was a nitty-gritty, you know, kind of tough kid from the streets uh, uh, who, who, who became a boxer, and he became one of the greatest boxers ever. And he said this, once you start wearing silk pajamas, it's tough to get up early. He talked about how being wealthy had dulled his edge, how winning and everything, and money, and success, and fame kept him 
from doing the things that got him there in the first place. And that is a very strong statement for Christians today. The things that got us reconciled with God, the things that we put away, they creep back into our lives. Once you start wearing silk pajamas, it's tough to get up early. Once things are great in your life, it's tough to hit your knees in prayer, to get up early and pray, because things are going great. So when, when, when your family's great, when the job is going well, when you got money in the bank, got a roof over your head, you got food on the table, it is really tough to get up early. It's called the prosperity trap. And we are to make our own mistakes, don't make theirs. I found that most people can handle adversity. They really can. They just can't handle prosperity. You know, we always hear testimonies in church about people who have overcome severe adversity. You know, um, every, every place I go where I share my testimony about losing my son and what God has done, people just are like, wow, that's just amazing. And I'm glad that God gave me that story. To, to, to him be the glory. But you know what I'd love to hear? I'd love to hear a testimony of someone whose life has been amazing, who has been faithful to God, who God has blessed with wealth. Their family's going great. He's gotten all, given all the breaks in life, and the person is a potent, uh, faithful, amazing follower of Jesus Christ over 40, 50 years. Now, that would be something. That would really be something, because most people can handle adversity, but we don't handle prosperity. So how do we avoid the prosperity trap? How do we avoid being that bird hitting the window like Israel? How do we avoid that? Well, there are three things. I want you to write them down. Three ways we can avoid the prosperity trap cycle. The first is this. Never forget God's absolute and total glory. Never forget that. Listen to what Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross never ever forget the greatness and the glory of God never that is the first step to 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 falling into the prosperity trap the first step get this to losing your edge, the first thing that the silk pajamas do to you is stop you from worship. When worship exits your life, be sure that lukewarmness, complacency, and rebellion are on the horizon because you've forgotten the greatness and the glory of God. Remember, last series we talked about what worship is. Worship isn't just singing. I don't know why we in the church have, have equated worship with just singing. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is acknowledging everything that God is through everything that you are. We worship God when we sing, of course. But when you forgive someone, when you forgive someone, that is worship because that's shouting the goodness and glory of God. When you uh, uh, are honest and dependable at work, when you go the extra mile at work, that is worship because you're bringing honor and glory 
to God, when you are consistent in prayer and study and you give God the best part of your morning, remember that's what it means to put God first, you give God the first part of your morning, he gets the first tenth of our income, he gets the first part of our morning, first day in every decision, first day of the week, that's what it means to put God first. That is worship. We can have worship-centered marriages where both husband and wife do things according to the will of God so your home is a place of peace and blessing and all the fruit of the Spirit are there. Love and joy and peace and patience and all the others. Um, where, where husband and wife treat their spouse as Jesus would treat them. That's a worship-centered marriage. You can have worship-centered homes where the Word of God is, is, is lived out daily where forgiveness is the norm, where joy and laughter, those are worship-centered homes because people love being there. You don't have to make people say they want to be there because it's worship-centered. Worship is the first thing to exit during good times, though. When there's food on the table, roof over the head, job's doing great, no problems, no major issues, worship is the first thing to exit. There are people that aren't here this morning, not because life is falling apart, because life is so awesome, they don't feel the need to, 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 to give God any glory. They don't feel a pressing need. See, they think that God is a spiritual EMT that they run to when they're in trouble. I'm, I, don't, I don't call EMTs right now, I'm healthy. Anybody called an EMT today or, or, or I, I haven't? I call them when I'm sick. Well, that's what they think God is. He's a spiritual EMT. I only talk to you when I'm having trouble. And once he fixes me, then I forget. Now just leave him alone. And he's on, he's on my speed dial. If I have trouble, I'll shoot up a prayer to the big guy. And, uh, and, and then he'll fix it, and I'll go about my life. That's the attitude of so many Christians today. And that's the, that's the reason the prosperity trap cycle happens. See, guys, when worship exits the stage, when we stop focusing on God, when we, when, when, when we stop giving God all the glory and we forget his awesomeness and his majesty, uh, when he becomes a nice thought and little else, something awful happens. We don't stop worshiping, okay? Everybody thinks we do. We don't stop worshiping. We simply stop worshiping God, and we start worshiping lesser things. You're like, Dave, I don't worship lesser things. What are you talking about? I don't bow down and sing praise. No, no, you don't. We in America are too uh, skillful for that. No. We truly begin to think that God's blessings are superior to God himself, and we just love his blessings more than the blesser. We love the things he gives rather than the giver. Those things take center stage. And the reason it's so difficult is that there are very, very good things. And their blessings are things that God has given you because he loves you. And we begin to value those over him. For example, I'm going to really step on, on something for, for me one of the things that becomes an idol, one of the things that gets our worship is our family. Now you say, Dave, family's evil. No, it's not evil, but it was never meant to be put before God. There are people that we have, that have been part of our church who's, who's, who, they're a believer, maybe their, their spouse isn't, or their parents aren't, and they leave the church, leave the faith so they can have an intact family. That's putting the family the gift over the giver. We prioritize work. Work is a gift that God has given us. You may not believe that, but it is. Work is a gift. We prioritize that over God. There are people that work on Sundays. They don't have to. I mean, I work on Sunday, you, you, but, but they do work on Sunday. They're not here because they gotta make that dollar. They gotta make that work. They gotta, gotta, gotta make the money. 
Prioritize work over God. Prioritize money, money over God. These things that God has blessed us with, we, we move them into his spot. That is known through the Bible as idolatry. And that's what happens in the prosperity trap is we begin to value the blessings more than the blesser, the gifts more than the giver. There's a man who was very, very, very poor. And he was a faithful member of church. He got to be good friends with the pastor. And, uh, and he, he was in church every Sunday, and he was a tither. He tithed. He made like, made like 10 bucks a week. He gave $1 a week. And then all of a sudden, his business took off, and he started making 1000 a week. And then soon, he was making 100000 a week, became a multimillionaire. And the pastor noticed he was still giving $1 a week. And so he went to visit the guy and said, man, God has really just blessed your business. God is, it's amazing what he's doing. But as your friend and as your pastor, I'm, 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 I'm seeing that, that you're not keeping up. You know, you're, you're, you're still giving the same amount you were making when you were making 10 bucks. What's up? And the guy said, you know, pastor, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. I, I, just, I just make too much money. I, I can't tithe now. I can't give 10%. I, I just make too much. I, I can't give that much. And the pastor said, Let's pray. And they went to the Lord in prayer. And the pastor said, Lord, please reduce this man's income so that he can tithe once again. You know, see, that is exactly what happens. The prosperity trap. We begin thinking that we're the ones pushing the lawnmower and not God. See, every single one of these instances in, in Israel's history, they stopped worshiping God and gave their worship to lesser things, like a job or money. They, they began worshiping rocks and stones and images, the gods around the people living uh, in, their, in, their, uh, in their country. And, and we, we are no different. We give our worship to sports stadiums and to celebrities and fame and money and popularity in social media and anything that money will buy. The, the blessings God gives us, we begin to worship them. They, they, uh, see, at least the nation of Israel was honest. They actually called it worship. They actually went to these temples to worship. At least they were honest about their idolatry. We in America aren't. We aren't. We don't call our idols gods, but they have our hearts. They have our money, they have our time, they have our passion. They definitely get our worship. They get our priorities. They get our time, our passion, like I said, our schedules and our thoughts. Remember, people, and I say this as lovingly as I can, God doesn't play second fiddle. If he's not first, he's not there at all. He won't accept second or third or fourth place in your life. He knows himself. He knows he's God. He is the great, he, he, he is God. He will not play second fiddle because he knows himself too, and he values himself too much, okay? That, that, that's why lukewarmness bothers him so much. That's why in the book of, of, of uh, Revelation, he says, I'd rather you hot or cold. Don't give me this lukewarmness. Don't give me this trite little, okay, God, I'll throw you a few things. That's even more insulting than walking away from me, God says. He goes, don't give me that. He goes, don't give me a patronizing nod to my glory. That's far more offensive than outright rejection. People never forget the glory and the awesomeness 
of God, what he's done, his creation, his amazing world, his amazing gifts of love, his amazing gifts of the church, of friendship, of, of the, the prosperity that you have, the, the roof over your head, the food, your, food in your pantry, the beating of your heart, the oxygen in your lungs. That is all a gift from God that he didn't have to give you. Never forget that, okay? The second thing we say is this. Never make peace with the world in rebellion against God. Never make peace. Luke 14, 31 through 33, Jesus says this, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. See, the second way that, that stage five happens, the complacency and lukewarmness and the forgetting, is when we forget that our citizenship is in heaven, not here. Did you guys know that? That your citizenship is in heaven? You are just passing through this life. You're not going to stay here forever. We're never meant to stay here forever. These mortal bodies will die at some point, and you'll spend eternity one of two places. Never forget that. Because I believe the church has tried to basically make peace with a world in rebellion against God. We've basically looked at the army coming at us, and we're like, eh, we can't win this, so I'm, I'm just gonna make peace. I'm, I'm gonna send a delegation, I'm gonna sue for terms of peace, I don't want the battle, I don't want the fight, I'm just gonna make peace with this rebellious world, and I'm gonna do whatever it takes for them not to come after me. Now what happens when an army seeks peace? Does it ever work out well for that army? No, no, no. The weaker side is always the one seeking peace. So the, uh, so the uh, army that, that, that is stronger or the one that, that the, the, the opposing one says, okay, you want peace, this is what you do. You do everything we want you to do. You submit to our rule. You don't get uppity. You don't hold on to these things. You basically compromise everything you believe so that you can live with us and we'll leave you alone. And I think, honestly, that's the deal that a lot of us in the church have accepted, really have. Christians have basically just said, okay. We've said okay. We don't wanna be labeled political. We don't wanna be labeled fire and brimstone. We don't wanna be labeled outcasts. We don't be labeled all that. We want our peace and our comfort and our popularity and our job opportunities and our good grades in school and our vacations. We don't want people making fun of us or mocking us or criticizing us. So we'll just make peace by becoming exactly like the people around us. In the last 50 so years of American history, has been the church doing exactly that. Why would our children and our grandchildren, honestly, let's, let's, parents and grandparents, let's ask this question. Why would they be interested in faith in God? They've seen their parents and their grandparents compromise everything the Bible says to be liked and to fit in with this world. They've seen their parents and grandparents lead lives that mirror non-Christian people. No difference It's seeing their parents and grandparents value everything their non-Christian uh, friends value. They've watched the church make peace with a rebellious world by compromising everything that Jesus said. 
So really, our, our, our kids and our future kids are kind of scratching their heads saying, what, what can I be one to? The church looks exactly like the world. What, what, what do I need to be one to? I'm already there. There's no difference between a non-Christian and a Christian. They all look the same. Because the church and Christians have made peace with the world. And that has led us to complacency and lukewarmness and will lead us to rejection and rebellion against God. Charles Spurgeon said something that has bothered me for all these years. He said this, It is very ill omen to see a wicked world clap its hands and shout, Well done to a Christian man. Be careful, church, who applauds your actions. Be careful, who, who thinks your values and your actions are good. If a rebellious world is applauding, saying, good job, church, good job, Christian, you're on dangerous ground, okay? If you like, and, and I, I, somebody challenged me with this, that if your life makes sense to an unbeliever, you're doing something wrong. Be wary, church, of who applauds your values, your actions, and your beliefs. Not all applause is good. So we find ourselves in this kind of compromised, lukewarm thing where we're not making, where we've sued for terms of peace so the world will like us, so the world will accept us. We've taken on their values and taken on their things just so that no one will, will be mad at us, okay? And, and we look around this world in complete rebellion against God and we just say, okay, things are good. Things are fine. And we'll actually go after other Christians. This is a sad, this is a sad thing. We'll actually go after other Christians that, that, that are, are, are going to war. We'll actually go after them. We have the gall to call it out and have the gall to tell them they're being, you know, call it being political or rabble-rousing or turning people off. People who say you're just turning people off by taking that stand or by saying this, to, you know, uh, after tell, you know does, I, I have a question. Does not telling people about Jesus not talking about biblical values, does that win them to Jesus? No, no it doesn't. All it does is give you peace with the world in rebellion against God. So we actually have churches afraid to speak out on things that the Bible's clear about because we want to be like, because we want to be at peace with the world in rebellion against God. There is a, uh, a topic that I am very, very, very passionate about. Those of you all know, I'm extremely pro-life. I'm extremely pro-life, especially after having a, a doctor recommend abortion for my child um, that, was, that was going to be non-viable. Non-viable doesn't mean non-living, doesn't mean not made in the image of God. But I'm, I'm very, very, very passionate about life and about it being God's creation. And there, uh, there are two ways that abortion is, is exit to society. Two ways, I guess, maybe, maybe more, but two I can think of. One is extremely wrong, and one is the right way. You, you, I guess you could, uh, the, you could fight abortion by bombing abortion clinics, which you definitely don't want to do, and that's wrong. It's against everything we believe as, as, as Christians. Or you can vote it out. And there is a constitutional amendment um, on, the, on the ballot in November to, to ban abortion in Kentucky. Now, people say, well, Dave, you're being political. How could you talk about that? Well, the same people that tell me that want abortion gone. Do you want, you want God's creation destroyed in the womb? I don't. I don't want that. I want that gone. The only way you do that is by voting it out. But guys, unless we start speaking about that, 
It'll continue to happen. The, it, it's, it's this ironic thing. The same Christians that wring their hands. Like, why, why are there so many 63 million unborn killed every year? Well, uh, did you talk about it in church? Oh, no, no, no. We don't want to talk about it in church. See, guys, we don't want to make peace with the world in rebellion against God. I don't care if the unbelieving world claps up and says, hey, Catholic Christian Church, good job. You guys are awesome. I don't want their applause. I want God's applause. And that's what we should all want. Okay? Never make peace with the world in rebellion against God because to do so means you have to agree with the world. It's interesting how Jesus ends this statement. He says this, after talking about making peace with your opposition, he says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Wow. If you want this, what this world offers, if you can be bought off by promises of peace and prosperity and goodness and, and, and everything and comfort, he said, you can't be my disciples. If you can be convinced to leave the battlefield by compromising everything that you believe in so that you can live in peace, you're not worthy to follow me, Jesus says. So many of us have just decided that it is too hard to stand for our beliefs to stay true to God. So they send a delegation to the culture and say, hey, we just want to be liked. We just want to live at peace. We don't want the waves, so tell us, tell us what to do and we'll do it. And that mirrors the church. Church has done that on finances. Church has done, has done that on sexuality. Church has done that on education. Church has done that with sports, politics. We basically just made, a peace, made peace with the world and rebellion against God and become very much so, so, so much like it that we fit into it without even thinking. That's how complacency and lukewarmness set in. And when the church sounds more like Madison Avenue in social media than it does like the Bible, it, uh, we know that we're in stage six and seven of the prosperity trap. The third thing is this. This is the best one. I love this. Never forget what God has saved you from and where you'd be without him. Never forget. Man. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Praise God. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved. Guys, it is so easy to forget where we come from. So easy to forget what we have been saved from. So easy to forget where we would be without Jesus. I hope that today, every one of you remembers where you would be without Jesus Christ. We're such a forgetful people. And when things are great, when there's plenty of food to eat and, and, the, and the roof is over the head and things are good in the family, Man, it's just so easy to forget what God has saved us from. When we aren't being bombed by a foreign army, aren't being invaded by a swarm of locusts, when the AC is working well, oh yeah. When the cats are actually winning football games, when, the, when Hulu has your favorite TV shows and movies, you tend to forget what God has saved us from. And I think one of the reasons why is because hell has disappeared from American churches. We don't talk about hell. Jesus talked about it all the time, but we don't talk about it. Parents, I will, I will tell you this. Your children probably don't think about hell at all. They don't. 
They have no idea what they've been saved from. They have no idea the eternity of, of people without Jesus. They have no idea because it's, been, it's completely edited out of our, of our culture. People who deconstruct, that's a really cool thing to do right now, the deconstruction, have completely forgotten what Jesus saved them from. Okay? Remember, and please remember this, Jesus did not come here to deliver you from bad days, from bad finances, from marriage problems, from addiction. Now, he does deliver you from those saints to his glory. Praise God that he does. But that's not why he was here. He came here to deliver you from an eternity in hell. And if you think your marriage problems or your financial ruins are serious, you don't have the concept of hell. Every problem we have in this world is temporary. That, he, he, the eternity is what he came to save us from, right? The Bible tells us the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Why is that? Because the fear of God, that we, we, we uh, instead, of, uh, instead of forgetting what we've been saved from, we remember what we're saved from. Now, there are a lot of reasons why people are here this morning. And I don't love every one of them. I love every reason that you're here. Some of you all are here to be inspired, and I hope that you are. I really hope you are. Some of you are here to see friends, and I'm glad you've got friends here. Praise God that you've got friends here. Some of you are here because family expects you to be here, and, and praise God that your family expects you to be here. I wish there were a few more families that were, were that way. Some of you are here because this is your job and you kind of have to be. And praise God that I get to be your pastor. Praise God that this is my job. But do you know why I wish everyone was here? The real reason? Gratitude. I wish, I would love for every single person in here and joining us online that was here simply because you were grateful. Because you know what God saved you from. You knew what your future was without him. You knew where you were and you knew who you are. Even, even worse, we know who we are without Jesus, amen? I mean, my goodness, who would we be without Jesus? Great churches, you all, are grateful churches. Why do we love God? Why do we give him our worship? Because of gratitude. You know, see, both Israel and America, we've taken the past we're taking because we've lost our gratitude to God. We think we're the ones pushing the lawnmower. We think we're the ones making all this good times and, and prosperity happen. We think that it's our work that's bringing our income. No, it's not. It could be gone like that. People will do things out of fear or obligation. They'll do many things out of fear or an obligation, but the things that people will do out of gratitude, that knows no limits, no bounds. Catalyst, never let this prosperous country and this high standard of living make you forget what God has blessed you with and what he has saved you from and where you'd be without him. Don't ever let that happen. You know, sometimes I wonder why God would bless us because we seem to handle adversity much better than we handle prosperity. The worst sins Israel ever committed were when times were good, not when they were bad. When times were bad, they cried out to God and they repented. So I wonder why God would ever bless us, because it seems like that blessing only leads to our rebellion. I pray that you guys will learn the lesson from Israel's history. Make your own mistakes, don't make theirs. And I guess I leave you with this challenge. Don't make God sorry that he blessed you. Stay sharp. Stay sharp. Always remember, God is the one pushing the lawnmower. Never forget that. God bless you. See you next week.
Adios. Bye-bye.